Some of you might remember Paul Harvey. How many of you remember Paul Harvey on the radio? Oh, good. A bunch of you. Paul Harvey was on, you should remember him, he was on from 1951 to 2008. And he was uh, a broadcaster on radio for ABC for those years. He told a segment that aired around noon every day called The Rest of the Story. And it reached millions at that noon hour. Mr. Harvey would begin by giving a summary of the news. He was very gifted and he had this 1940s radio personality that just kind of was timeless. Um, And he would weave through the news and talk about his uh, sponsors seamlessly. But then he would get to the end of the segment after giving a summary of the news and he would do a, a segment called The Rest of the Story where he would start off by giving the details of a person's life. So he might start out, you know, so-and-so began on Fifth Street in a small town in the Midwest. And he would gradually build up the story till you were anxious for him to tell you who the person was. And finally, at the end of it, he'd say, and you knew this man as Elvis Presley or the maker of the, you know, typewriter, or something like that. It, was, it would be somebody that you'd never known their story. It was a compelling segment, which is partly why it was successful for so many years. And today, friends, we continue on with the story of Jacob, that very flawed patriarch in the Old Testament. So, if you weren't here, just be refreshed. Last week, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca plotted to deceive Isaac, the father, the great patriarch, into blessing Jacob, the second-born son, in Esau's place. If you weren't here last week, hopefully you remember this from Sunday school, if nothing else. Rebekah dressed her son Jacob up in the skins of animals and gave him food, the stew that his father craved, And by deception, by deception and lies and even blasphemy, Jacob succeeded in receiving the blessing that was supposed to be for Esau. But of course, in the Lord's way, the blessing was for him. And when we got to the end of the sermon last week, you might have thought to yourself, really? Jacob, this guy, this thief, this stealer of blessing, this is the father of the nation of Israel? This is the person that God's going to use? Well, good morning, Americans. In a minute, you're going to hear the rest of the story. And as we look at the text today, the rest of this story, we're going to see three things. Number one, God is merciful. Number two, God is patient. And number three, God is gracious. We continue today's story then with Esau's returning to the tent. Open, if you would, with me in your Bibles. You can also find this in the order of service. But if you have your Bibles with you, our first lesson is taken from Genesis chapter 27, starting with verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob... When Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came 
from his hunting. Verse 31, And he prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And we'll stop there. All seems well as Esau enters into the tent, into his father Isaac's presence. Scholar Gordon Wenham points out that in the original Hebrew, Esau's mood is more exaggerated. He's just kind of, you know, hopping his way into the tent. Da-da-da-da-da, I'm bringing this food. He's got things sewn up. He's got confidence. He's about to receive his father's blessing. And he's so familiar, in fact, that he addresses his father in, in a way that's very unoriental, that's very un-Middle Eastern in its way. He addresses him very familiarly here. Why is Esau so happy? Why is he hopping along? His father Isaac, remember, is supposedly dying. That's what precipitates this event. Well, the answer is that Isaac and Esau are also two peas in a pod, as Jacob and Rebekah are. You see, they too are schemers. And you might not have caught this. But there's a piece from last week's reading that highlights this to us. That Jacob and Rebekah aren't the only deceivers and schemers. And if you have your Bible, and this is the advantage to not relying on the bulletin, look back at the beginning of Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it for you. This is the beginning of the same chapter. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see... He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die." Now again, you might not have caught this because you're not from, you know, 1,000, 2,000 B.C. in the Middle East, but there's something very wrong with this picture back at the beginning of the chapter. Do you have any idea what it is? Isaac, the patriarch, is about to die. And he calls Esau only to be blessed. What's the problem here? The problem is that Esau and Isaac are scheming against Jacob. Now, if you don't know this you know, culture, that's okay. Part of this culture is that the patriarch would bless all of his children at the end of his life. And so what's going on way back here at the beginning of the story is a grave injustice against Jacob. Jacob is supposed to receive a blessing. But Isaac and Esau have schemed together, along with the other sons, by the way, because there's other sons. Um, Isaac and Esau have schemed together to give Esau all the blessing, everything. Not just the inheritance, but the patriarchal blessing for everybody. All right, do you see the problem? Jacob and Rebekah aren't the only schemers. Esau is hopping into the tent because 
on his father's deathbed, he is going to receive everything to the exclusion of everybody else. No wonder Esau is so happy. He's going to finally put that stinking Jacob into his place. Right? There'll be no more striving, so he thinks. And his father has his back. So you see, there's deception here on all fronts. As I said last week, all of the people in this story are sinful, deceptive, and wicked. But Esau's mood is about to change drastically. Look at verse 32 through 34, again in today's reading, in chapter 27. His father, Isaac, said to him, that is Esau, Who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said to him, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. When they realized that Jacob had deceived them both, Isaac trembles with rage, and Esau cries out. Then the full weight of what has happened begins to dawn on Esau at this point. Look at verse 36. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me out of these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not received, reserved a blessing for me? Do you see the irony in verse 37? Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And the answer, because of their scheme, is no. No. There's no blessing left for Esau. But then again, this is what they had planned. This is what they were doing to Jacob. So nevertheless, Esau hates Jacob, we're told. And the only thing that keeps him from killing Jacob, besides the hand of God himself, is the fact that Isaac's still alive. Look at the end of verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. That's the beginning of the verse. The days of the mourning for my father are approaching, thought Jacob, or thought Esau. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. But before the words of Esau, her older son, were told, but before, but the words, rather, of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise and flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. This striving between these two men has boiled over into hatred And scholar Alan Ross observes that the Hebrew used in this section of Scripture is supposed to take the reader back to another story at the beginning of Genesis 
another one between two brothers, Cain and Abel. And yet, what's fascinating here is that Isaac blesses, is that, is that what Isaac blesses, quote-unquote, Esau with. And in his blessing, God brings mercy. There's some very interesting run-ins between the nation of Israel and the Edomites, the sons of Esau. But Esau himself does actually quite well, as we're going to see in chapter 33. Esau does so well that he doesn't need Jacob's gifts, as we'll see later in the year. Twenty years will go by. Short days becomes years that he's in Haran. And God is gracious to Esau, just as he's gracious to Ishmael, which might make you scratch your head. And that takes us to our New Testament lesson today, which is, I believe, often completely misinterpreted to the effect of establishing what in the Anglican and Lutheran view is a wrong-headed version of election or predestination. Maybe you've run across it before. Many will point to Romans 9.13, our New Testament lesson, and see Esau as the personification of those predestined for hell. Have you run into that? Let me refresh you on the verse itself. It's, again, in your, in your uh, packet if you want, but in the Bible, it's chapter 9 of Romans, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Right? Many people see this as Esau being an archetype of those predestined for hell. I think that's flat out wrong. Flat out wrong. But you run into this in reformed circles. And I think the problem with it is that it yields a false doctrine of fatalism and predestination combined. You see, that doctrine essentially says that from the beginning, God chooses individuals to be saved and chooses individuals to be damned. From the very beginning. This doctrine conflates God's foreknowledge, what God knows ahead of time, with his grace into one thing. And in other words, what it says is that if he foresaw you as a child of promise from the beginning, then you're saved. And it has nothing to do with your will. It also conflates God's call and his election. And this is known in Calvinism as irresistible grace. Perhaps you've heard that too. Now, don't get me wrong, there is some truth in the doctrines of irresistible grace and predestination, but it's not what I just said. That's not the position of the historic church. People are not predestined for heaven and predestined for hell without any warrant, without any looking at their own actions or their own wills. And I think the problem with this doctrine is that the rest of Scripture shows it as false self-evidently. And so I don't understand why people fall for this. Open to Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Look at the context of what's going on in this passage. It's a long passage, but I had um, John read it all because the context here is so important. Chapter 9, verse 6. 
But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For all who are descended from Israel, not all who are descended from Israel, belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, so that's Romans 9, 6, and 7. Why am I belaboring this point so much? Well, St. Paul here is writing to the church in Rome and has just stated his grief that Jews haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah. This grieves Paul greatly because they are the biological children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Paul continues on to make this argument that while God guarded his people from the pagan wickedness so that Jesus could come forth from them, not all children of Israel are actual children of Israel. That is, children of Jacob. And not all sons of Abraham are Abraham's physical, biological sons. And so you can scratch your head here and say, Paul, are you confused? Are you talking in riddles? What's your point here? How can all children not be his children? How can not offspring be his offspring? But Paul is very much making a tight argument here about spiritual fatherhood about spiritual versus biological offspring. To put it in modern parlance, in our tradition, he's talking about godparents. Right? Godparents. Parents in God. Fathers in the faith. Sometimes our physical fathers and mothers, our biological fathers and mothers, are our fathers in the faith and our mothers in the faith. But not always. Right? Not always. Look at verse 8. Again, Romans 9. It's the very next verse from the one we left off on. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So, in this light, how are we to view verse 13 that we read at the beginning of the passage, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Well, it's not about predestined sorry, salvation at all. It's not about predestined salvation at all in this passage. It's about God's providing spiritual fathers and mothers so that the spiritual lineage can provide salvation to all whether they are Gentile or Jew. Remember, Paul is writing to a Roman church that's split down the middle between Gentile and Jew. And so this is what Paul's talking about here. In fact, if we look at the Greek behind verse 13, while loved is a proper translation of agape, and hated is the proper translation of the root word missio, Paul is using a contrast here to overemphasize God's love not to emphasize God's hate. Look, you think I'm making this up? Jesus does this himself. 
Back in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus our Lord says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus actually mean that we're to hate our physical fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters? No. Jesus is doing the same thing, or rather Paul is doing the same thing here in Romans that Jesus does back in Luke 14. He's saying, by contrast, if you don't love God so much that it seems like you hate your mother and your father and your wife and your brothers, then you don't love God enough. And so St. Paul is saying, I have loved Jacob so much so much that it seems like I hate Esau. It's a comparison. It's a contrast. This is actually a, 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 a tact used in rhetoric. So God was Jacob's chosen, right? Jacob was God's chosen, sorry, in the covenant to bring forth Jesus. Jacob was going to be the father, the spiritual father of a nation that's saved by a promise, both Jew and Gentile. That's why this passage ends with that quotation. Look at how this passage in Romans ends at verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God those who were not chosen to be part of the line that would bring forth Jesus by God's grace and glory, mercy and patience are given through Jesus the ability to be sons and daughters of God. That's the overarching theme here in Romans 9. All Abraham's household, remember, was part of this seed part of this chosen people. All Isaac's household was part. Jacob and Esau both. And this is St. Paul's point. That in his providence, God ensured the coming forth of Jesus Christ from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that once again, all might be sons and daughters of God by the Spirit, not by biology. Praise God. Praise God. What Paul is talking about here is the fact that salvation is open to Jew and Gentile, to anyone who chooses to believe in Jesus Christ, regardless of his or her background. And what's amazing here is that St. Paul is highlighting this, that some of Abraham's spiritual children are his biological children, But what's even more mind-blowing is that some of Abraham's spiritual children are of Ishmael. And some of them are of Esau. And some of them are of other Gentiles. Through Christ, through faith, by faith, by the grace of God, all can be spiritual sons of Abraham. St. Paul's argument in Romans 9 is that God would bring, is that God providentially brings the fruition, the completion of salvation. It's a chapter of hope, a chapter of hope and assurance 
Lutheran scholar R.C. Lenski writes succinctly, for the main thought of this passage is God's provident care, and the main object of it, comfort and assurance in regard to that care. What we as Christians are supposed to take from this is that look at Jacob and Esau and the train wreck of their family. But God, by His providence, brings this dysfunction into some sense to bring forth Jesus, to bring forth life out of it. So why is this important to us? Well, because here in Romans 9, we see the big picture of God's redemption. We see the rest of the story. We see in Genesis the dysfunction, but in Romans we see the redemption. The redemption of the stolen blessing. God redeems it. Sin has real personal fallout, doesn't it? Any of you that's lived at least a few years, you know this. That sin has real personal fallout. And we shouldn't gloss over that. Rebecca, who in Genesis 27:45 seeks not to be, quote, bereft or lose both of her sons, in fact does. She loses anything that was left of Esau's heart as her scheme is exposed. And she loses her favorite, Jacob. For this is the last time that Rebekah is mentioned in the Bible. Jacob goes away for a few days to escape Esau's wrath, but a few days rolls into years, which rolls into decades, 20 years actually, and Rebekah's heard from no more. It's sad. It's the last mention of her in the Bible. This woman who starts out in Genesis 24 is a woman who boldly leaves her family to follow Isaac as part of God's plan, falls into the bitter fruit of her own scheming and just kind of fades away. And we're left only to hope that she restores the trust in her marriage with Isaac. For Isaac doesn't die, as Scripture tells us, but also goes on for 20 years, so much for him being on his deathbed. But far from near death, he does live to see his sons reunited. Is that a mercy to him and to Rebecca? We don't know. Scripture's silent on it. In Esau's wrath, he wants to slay Jacob. Again, shades of Cain and Abel for losing his birthright and his blessing. But despite all of that, God is at work even in Jacob and Esau. Next week, he begins the Jacob Reclamation Project. That's what I call it. The Jacob Reclamation Project. Jacob, by God's grace, begins to be formed into Israel. For that's the name, that's what his name change becomes. And God, by his grace, sowing these spiritual seeds in Jacob and his covenant, starts the change in him. Interestingly, he also starts a change in Esau. And from this, will come an ultimate work in Jesus. In Jacob, in his covenant fatherhood, his spiritual fatherhood, the doors of salvation are flung wonderfully open to all people, 
Jews and Gentiles. And when we look at our own lives, when we look at the world that's around us, we can take a lot from Genesis 27 and Romans 9 both, can't we? We can see that the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob is a God of mercy, a God of patience, and a God of grace. He's merciful. This doesn't mean that he ignores sin or keeps us from all of its tragic effects. Sometimes it does play out tragically. But God does provide a way out through his eternal salvation from the eternal effects of sin. And salvation is a costly mercy granted to us through Jesus, his Son. If we ever need to be humbled, and I think as Christians we often need to be humbled, at least I do, all we need to remember is that we are only children of God by God's mercy through his grace. That's it. We don't deserve it, but only by his mercy and grace. Second, God is patient. God plays the long game. Sometimes that's hard for us to see. God plays the long game. Remember, we're talking thousands of years here between Genesis 27 and Romans 9. But he plays the long game in our own lives too. You know, God doesn't give up on Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, or Jacob. As we're going to see, God has a lot in store for Jacob to make him into Israel, the father of a nation. And God will put him through 20 years of servitude to learn the fruit of deception. Jacob's going to get his comeuppance. But it's because God is disciplining him to be the man he wants him to be. Have you seen that in your own life? Have you seen that in your own walk with Jesus? Sometimes we kick against it because sometimes it just flat out sucks. Do you think Jacob ever thought that as he was indebted to his father-in-law for 20 years? Absolutely. But God's patient because you're worth it. He's patient because you're worth it. And finally, God is gracious. It kind of sounds silly to say because it's become so trite, but God is gracious in His grace. What I mean is that God pours out His grace not just to adopt us as sons and daughters of God, as St. Paul says, but to keep us running as sons and daughters of God. In our collect today, and this will be my last thought, it speaks of God as a God of pity and mercy. Did you catch that in the collect of the day, way at the beginning of the service? I'll read it for you. O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. But it also goes on to see him who grants as the one who grants the, quote, fullness of grace. What is the fullness of grace? Is that just grace to accept him? No, it's so much more. It's grace to walk with him. Yes, it's grace to obtain the promises and the very treasures of heaven. Again, what we prayed today. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. And of course, through Jesus Christ, we're granted that. So friends, see God's mercy and patience 
and graciousness in the texts today and see it in your own lives. See it in your own lives. Where is he at work? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.